My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk podcast. I am sitting here with Dr. Spencer Green. He is one of the world's leading experts on snake bite and specifically the treatment of snake bite. So this is a, a really exciting topic for me. We've had we've had people on the podcast who've talked about snake bite and talked a little bit about treatment, but this is the first time I really feel like we have one of the world's. Uh, experts in, in medical toxicology. So uh, I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and, and it's also interesting to me because I spend a great deal of time traveling around the Southeast in the country, uh, giving trainings and lectures on how to be safe in snake country, educating about the species themselves, but then also talking about the treatment of snake bite in the wild. And so I'm really excited to have uh, Spence or, or Dr. Green kind of tell me everything that that <laughs> that I've been doing wrong over the years. So, uh, Spence, well, welcome, welcome to the Snake Talk podcast. Well, thanks. I'm really happy to be here and talk to you all about snakes and snake bites. Great. Well, I like to have my guests uh, introduce themselves, and and you don't necessarily have to get into the you know all of your background, but because uh, we're I'm going to dive into that a little bit. But where are you sitting today? I know you wear a lot of hats. Um, so so where are you sitting today, and what are all these hats you're wearing? So right now I am in my hospital, which is uh, HCA Houston Healthcare Kingwood. I'm the director of toxicology, and I'm one of the attending emergency physicians, and I'm on faculty with the emergency medicine residency program. That's my main job. Um, that's what pays the bills. And I divide my time between emergency medicine, which you know is everything, anything that comes through the doors, and then the tox consults, which includes the snake bites. That's you know obviously what I care most about, what I'm you know best known for. But then the overdoses, the occupational exposures, the adverse drug reactions, and anything else that may you know, fall under that jurisdiction. Great. So I used the term earlier, uh, medical toxicology, or you are a medical toxicologist would be one of the titles that you might carry. Um, let's start off before we get into how you ended up there. Let's start off just defining that for our audience, because it may be a term that some people haven't heard. So absolutely. So Toxicology is a very broad subject, you know, looking at the study of toxins and toxicants, anything that, you know, is outside the body that can cause, you know, illness that's not an infectious, although there are some infections that are also toxins. So medical toxicology is the branch of medicine that deals with studying and treating these patients who have these toxicological exposures. Uh, medical toxicology is a fellowship, so it's subspecialty training. In the United States, most toxicologists, most medical toxicologists, 
uh, trained primarily in emergency medicine like I did. But there are also medical toxicologists who did a residency in pediatrics or internal medicine or preventive medicine. And every once in a while, you find a medical toxicologist whose background is in something completely different. There's at least one family practitioner medical toxicologist. There's at least one psychiatrist medical toxicologist. And there's at least one neurologist medical toxicologist. And obviously, the background sort of informs how they, they practice medical toxicology. You know, a psychiatrist doing toxicology in the North is probably not going to be managing a lot of snake bites. Um, conversely, they do a lot of uh, substance abuse and things that that I have to deal with on an occasional basis, but it's not really a main part of my my practice. My practice is a lot of snake bites and other envenomations, and then the acute overdoses. Hmm. So, so it's a pretty specialized uh, area that that you're working in, and then just as you mentioned, what you're you're most known for snakes, just having somewhat of a focus on that. Uh, I'm just curious how you got there. Did, uh, you know, is it, what came first, the, the snakes or the people? Were you, were you d- just, you know, wanted to be a medical doctor and that's what, you know, drove you as you were coming up to, you know, being a child or, or high school or college, or was it a, a love of snakes, or maybe spiders, maybe other animals that then you figured out then medicine would be a good way to interact or, or, you know. Maybe it happened simultaneously. You tell me. So it's actually kind of a funny story. Uh, my my love of snakes and snake bites is relatively new. You know, the last fifteen years. Um, I grew up on Long Island, and until I was five, my goal was to be an ice hockey player because you know the Islanders had a dynasty. And then at five, I decided I want to be a doctor. And for some inexplicable reason, from ages five to eighteen, I wanted to be an ophthalmologist, and I have no idea why. I, I couldn't tell you how that happened. And then once I hit 18, you know, I knew I want to do medicine, but I, I toyed with other specialties, um, went off to college, you know, was pre-med and I got involved in EMS. You know, I worked as an EMT and then as a paramedic. And at that point I knew I was going to do emergency medicine. So I went to medical school after going to grad school for four years, waving the banner of emergency medicine for pretty much all of medical school. I knew emergency medicine was my goal. Now, I will say I took a toxicology elective in graduate school, and I liked it. And I did always enjoy the toxicology lectures in my medical training, including emergency medicine, but I never thought anything beyond that. And when I started residency in emergency medicine at Vanderbilt, of all three classes, I was really the only EMS guy, and I figured my future lay in you know EMS medical direction. But shortly after I got to residency, I met our toxicologist. Uh, at Vanderbilt. And at the time, Donna Seeger was actually the president of the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. And I I just loved what she had to teach us. I love this huge body of knowledge that most doctors never get. You know, the snakes, the plants, the mushrooms, the occupational exposures, the adverse drug reactions, the intentional overdoses, everything. And I knew that my career was going to be in medical toxicology. I could have done a fellowship right after residency, but I had a military obligation to fulfill, and I chose to do that first. So I went off to Ohio to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Wright State University, and I was actually teaching toxicology for the residency program. I essentially started out a few weeks ahead of the residence, but after three years, I kind of learned a lot before I did my fellowship. But during my time on active duty, I deployed to Iraq, and I can't really talk about what I did. I signed the 25-year non-disclosure statement. But I had a lot of downtime. I didn't see a lot of patients. And I tried to 
find ways to occupy the time. And I became interested in the local fauna because we found a snake on our property. And quickly, I got really excited about snakes and scorpions and spiders. And at the same time, it was 135 degrees in Iraq, and I loved it. So I kind of had a meeting with myself. I'm like, you know what? I love snakes. I love hot weather. I need to go somewhere to study toxicology where it's warm and I can learn about snakes. So I went to the toxicology fellowship program, which at the time was the uh, Banner Good Samaritan uh, Medical Center in Phoenix. Now, I think it's Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. And historically, they treat the most bites in the country every year. And they generate a lot of the research that's out there on snake bites. So I went to Phoenix to learn toxicology in general, but snake bites in particular. And since then, I've made connections with people in in medicine and in industry, you know, who, who devoted their careers to snake bites. And that's kind of the focus of mine. So I went from Phoenix to Tucson, where I became the toxicology fellowship director. Then I moved out to Houston and I started a toxicology service uh, at Baylor College of Medicine. And then I started my consulting company. And now I'm at Kingwood teaching toxicology, treating toxicology patients and doing what I can locally, regionally and nationally to provide better care for snake bite victims. Well, first, thank you very much for your service. My son is uh, going into service uh, shortly as well. Um, So I'm interested to talk to you about, obviously, the treatment of snake bite and really kind of the expertise level if you you start looking across the country. But I want to start with that training piece. So you talked about some of these places, Vanderbilt or or where you went in Phoenix. Um, As a general, like if, if you have that interest in, let's say, toxicology, say specifically snakes, because that's the folks of the podcast, are there a lot of outlets in, let's just say, the United States or North America uh, uh, to learn, you know, these types of things? Or is it a pretty rare opportunity? It, it depends on really how much you want to learn. I tell people there are about two dozen people in the country I really trust to manage snake bites. And then there's dozens, if not hundreds of people who could probably do an adequate job. Um, unfortunately, there are thousands of physicians. And if you're not in the hundreds at most that I would say can do an adequate job, you're in the much larger group of people that I don't trust to do an adequate job. And that's, that's the thing, you know, snake bites are relatively obscure compared to things like heart attack and stroke and diabetes and car accidents. Most people never learn about it. Even people within emergency medicine, they rarely learn about it. And if they do, they're learning from someone who really wasn't well-trained in it. So one of the things I see is that most people just don't know about it. And they often recommend things that are useless at best and dangerous at worst. You know, there are only a few dozen people in the country who really have devoted the time to learn this stuff and to master this and to, to generate new information about it. So odds are you're going to go to a place with a bite and you're not going to have an expert level care because there are so few experts when it comes to this particular entity. So how, so first of all, I'll tell you that, you know, I, I work with uh, a lot of venomous snakes primarily uh, in the field, you know, doing ecological research and uh, conservation work, but I also keep a variety of, of venomous snakes for outreach programs and, and things like that. And so I, I do a lot of venomous snake handling. I've never had a, a venomous snake bite. Don't ever plan to, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, 
but you know, I, I keep a couple key phone numbers in my pocket in terms of, or in my snake bite plan in terms of, you know, if, if I get a snake bite, there are a couple of people I'm going to call and, and I will pay to have them come wherever I am to help <laughs> with the process. And one of them's not even a medical doctor. Um, and so, uh, I'm just curious, you know, you have the expertise, but like, what would you do with a snake bite? I'm assuming it's the same type of thing. You know exactly the best people. You know exactly where you want to go and who to call. Say if you couldn't, say, consult on your own treatment, how, right. how would you approach that? If for some reason I was unable to sort of dictate my own care, I mean, I would hope that the people I've trained at my current hospital would know what to do. I've written protocols for our hospital. I've trained my residents and my colleagues have actually, you know, seen how I manage these bites. So hopefully they would do it. But nationally, you know, there's a bunch of people and, you know, I'll name some names. I'll feel bad that I'll um, undoubtedly leave some people out. But, you know, I, I collaborate a lot with people like Eric Lavonis out of Rocky Mountain uh, Poison Center and Chuck Gerardo, who's probably the world's expert on copperhead bites. And I, I collaborate a lot with Nick Brandenhoff and I've worked with Bill Banner and Rick Dart. You know, I got some amazing training uh, from the folks at Banner Good Sam in Phoenix. So Michelle Ruiz, Steve Curry, uh, I work with Sean Bush a lot, you know, who had the Venom ER show. Um, there are these people that I know are going to do the best job in managing bites. But I would hope that when I get my envenomation, because it's just a matter of time, um, that my colleagues will do a good job because I've trained them well. So how about this? And I don't want to get into detail because a, a lot of the rest of the podcast is going to be diving into detail. Um, but if you are not you... You do not have your Rolodex. You you cannot necessarily get on Venom ER. I know the show's not going anymore, but you know what I mean? You're not calling Sean Bush. You are your average person in middle of nowhere, somewhere, Florida, and you get a snake bite and you're going to a medical facility. Uh, again, not in depth because I want to talk about a lot of components of treatment, but just at, at a kind of a high level What's the, the best thing you can do to be an advocate for your treatment, given some of the issues you talked about, that, that a lot of people, a lot of doctors are not trained in this because it really isn't that frequent of, of you know, it isn't something that they encounter as frequently as, say, right. heart issues. Honestly, you know, it's tough because most snake bite victims are not going to realize that most of their treating physicians are not necessarily well-versed in snake bites. And they're going to assume that what's being done is the right thing. All too often in, in the various snake groups on Facebook, people talk about the care they had and, and they love the doctors. And, you know, maybe the doctors really were nice people, but then I see what was done or what wasn't done. And it's, it's horrifying sometimes, but the victims don't know any better. You know, they just assume that's what happens. And that's the thing. You don't know what you don't know. And that's true for the treating physicians. And that's true for the snake bite victims. So what I try to do is talk about snake bites everywhere to all audiences so that people are somewhat familiar with, you know, what happens and what should happen and to advocate for themselves if the treatment they're getting doesn't coincide with what I've recommended. And I try to refer them to open access guidelines, whether it's the unified treatment algorithm, which came out in 2011, is considered like the Bible for managing snake bites. 
or I refer them to the American Academy of Emergency Medicine guidelines when it comes to the emergency department management of snake bites. I want them to be aware that these things are out there. So if the care they're getting doesn't, you know, isn't consistent with it, they can say, hey, well, what do you think of this? And of course, advocate for reaching out to a, a local specialist. You know, for some places that's the, the poison center, in some places that's the regional snake bite expert who may or may not be affiliated with the poison center. That this thing so many people don't know what they don't know. Is, is, so it's hard to. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought yeah. about it like that. Well, here's one other thing. And then I do want to kind of uh, jump into some of what you're working on today and snake bite in general. But another thing that I've kind of noticed, again, you know, I'm not a snake bite expert, but just in doing what I do, I, I interact with a number of people who've either had bites. I interact with medical professionals. I'm, I'm you know, I'm in, in that world. One thing I it's this is a complete anecdote and I want you to just tell me I'm wrong or, or you know, speak to it. But um, I so first of all, I live in a very small rural place, lots of public land. It's a county of 20,000 people. And, uh, you know, a tiny little mountain town hospital you can probably uh, imagine uh, what it might look like and yet we live in a county where there are you know you can have five to ten venomous snake bites a year because again it's rural but health treatment's small and one thing i've noticed in just these interactions over the years is that it seems to me that some of these very small town rural areas that experience a fair amount of snake bites actually have relatively good care in that specific area because they see it more than say maybe a medical professional in, in a a large urban area. Um, I mean, obviously there are certain people who are trained very specifically, but is that, Am I completely off base there? Is this thing, this anecdote that I'm observing, um, you know, again, the idea being that in small rural areas with high uh, frequencies of bites that you can actually get fairly decent care? It's possible, but I would say that's the exception more than the rule. I do know of some people in tiny little towns who are actually really experts. But the thing is, most people don't understand the natural time course of a snake bite. And they assume the care they got was terrific. You know, here's the thing. If you seek medical attention, the likelihood of death from a snake bite is really low. You know, I, I authored a paper that was published last year. We found that there was an average of 3.4 deaths annually in the United States from our native snakes. And many times it's people who didn't seek any medical attention. So death is unlikely. So when people, you know, get a snake bite and they don't die, they assume that they got great care. And that's why they didn't die, even though they probably wouldn't have died anyway. Um, hmm. A lot of times people have swelling that takes months to recover, and they just think that's the natural time course. What they don't realize is with aggressive treatments, they could be better in a week or two. So while they may think they got great care, they're really not getting great care. They're getting – and you know, some of the doctors who see snake bites over and over, they keep doing the same less than perfect treatment over and over, and they get very efficient at doing bad care. So people may think they got great care when you know, look at the data, though. They really – they're not getting great care. They're getting – you know minimal care. Oh, well, that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. That I, I want to think about that more and, and talk to some people about it, but okay, great. Well, you, you started to mention some statistics there and to set the framework for talking about snake bite, let's just talk in very general numbers. Uh, you know, you mentioned what less than five deaths per year in the U S or in North America. I don't remember, but, um, 
yeah, very few venomous snakes in Canada. Uh, but <clears throat> so uh, let's just talk about like, you know, I use a lot of statistics when I go out and do these programs, you know, talking about people's, you know, chances of, of dying, their chances of getting a bite. So how many on average, based on what we know, how many venomous snake bites might we have in the U.S. in a given year? So it's estimated that there's between 8,000 and 10,000 snake envenomations from our native snakes annually in the U.S. And fewer than five deaths in a typical year. 3.4 deaths in our in, – we looked at a 30-year period, yeah. Yeah, so 3.4 deaths. So that is the first biggest take-home message, and this is always a take-home message when I'm speaking that, uh, you know, that – you know, your chances of dying are incredibly low. Um, and, and that's a good starting point just to keep people calm, which is, is a really important thing, I think, in a snake bite scenario. Um, and, and I always make the point, you know, when I'm giving one of these presentations about kind of snake bite treatment in the wild, I'm usually holding a rattlesnake, you know, in a safe and, and proper manner. Um, and so I'm sitting there talking to these people who are just wide-eyed at the fact I'm holding a rattlesnake and at the information I'm presenting. Um, and then I tell them, if you look at this statistically, um, I, I took the snake out of the cage. I took it out for you here. I tubed it. I'm holding it. I need to put it away. Even if I went back to my office and handled three or four other snakes, say, for feeding or husbandry, the most dangerous thing that I did today was drive here to give this presentation. And Absolutely. people, it, it just, yeah, and you can do that with a number of different things, but it, it puts it in perspective. But, you know, I, I often say that snake bite, there are other things, whether it be, you know, fear of spiders or, sh or sharks or whatever it might be. There, there's a like incredibly low probability events, but they're like horrific in a sense. They, they're, they're, you know, there's just accentuated. They're just, they jump out in people's minds. And, uh, and that's, I think one of the fascinating things when I think about snake bite treatment and I talked about being calm. Uh, you know, I also, another thing I always say in all kinds of forums is that many, most people in the world, certainly in the United States, when they interact with the snake, they absolutely lose their minds. They, they literally, their minds are not working right. They can't function to like identify it. They can't, it, it's just, they just lose their minds. And so um, for me, you know, whenever I talk about treatment in the wild, uh, staying calm is, is such an important thing, but uh, I kind of, I kind of went on a tangent there. Sorry about that. But, no um, <laughs> but uh, so statistics wise, uh, death is incredibly rare. Um, what would be, uh, in North America, um, I would assume that the, uh, that the highest rate of bite by species would be a copperhead. And that I would guess that the highest rate of death due to a venomous native venomous snake bite would vary that, you know, it would be across a variety of species. Um, do you have any handle on either of those? I have a handle on both of those. So we know Perfect. that copperheads account for the plurality and possibly the majority of snake envenomations. No question about that. You know, there's okay. a huge geographic 
distribution of copperheads. So they're responsible for about, you know, half of all snake envenomations. You know, a question I'm always asked is, what's the most dangerous snake? And while I kind of love that question, I kind of hate it too, because it can be interpreted so many different ways. And some people give the canned response, the one that just bit you. And sure, that's a nice flippant answer, but I kind of hate that one too. I can tell you that in our study, we looked at 101 fatalities and we were able to identify the species in a little more than half of them. Far and away, the timber rattlesnake was responsible for more deaths than any other. But that doesn't mean it's the most dangerous snake. There's two reasons there were so many fatalities associated with timber rattlesnake bites. First, again, huge geographic distribution. There's a lot of them. And the timber rattlesnakes are the species most used in those snake handling religious services where when people get bitten, they don't seek medical attention. I think the best, and of course, you know, people often talk about various venom potencies, you know, how dangerous, you know, the venom is, you know, milligrams per kilogram or whatever. But potency is only one factor that determines the severity of a bite because the amount of volume delivered is arguably an even bigger issue. I think the best all-encompassing statistic to talk about the various dangers of snake is the untreated lethality rate. That is, what's the likelihood of you surviving or what's the likelihood of you dying if you seek no medical attention following this bite? So even though there have been six fatalities attributed to copperheads in the last 33 years, the untreated lethality rate is about 1%. On the other hand, for a Mojave rattlesnake, it's between 30 and 40%. Now, in our paper, I think there were only two or three fatalities attributed to Mojaves. I can't remember right now. But that's because there aren't that many Mojave bites, and most of them get treated. The untreated lethality rate is about 30 to 40%, which is so much worse than a copperhead. You know, for a Western diamondback, it's about 10 to 20%, maybe say 20%. Uh, Eastern diamondback is about 10, 20%, maybe, maybe 20 to 30%. For a timber rattlesnake, it's about 10 to 20%. Uh, and then for a copperhead cottonmouth, it's about 1%. So you could argue the Mojave is the most dangerous, but it's certainly not responsible for the most deaths for a variety of reasons. Wander North Georgia is a locally owned outdoor store in the heart of North Georgia. And as a family-run small business, conservation is one of the four values that guide and shape what we do around here. We are proud to support the work of Dr. Jenkins and his entire team at the Orient Society, who are doing the good work of protecting ecosystems and habitats for some of our favorite wildlife. To learn more about our small business and how we're able to support groups like the Orient Society, please visit wondernorthgeorgia.com slash 1%. Yeah, I mean, timber rattlesnakes, uh, in a lot of ways, very similar distribution to a copperhead. Um, and not only is it a really wide distribution, it's a distribution that overlaps with the majority of the human population in our country. And so, uh, you know, I could that makes a lot of sense that timber rattlesnakes would, would be uh, responsible for the most deaths. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about, first of all, let's talk about, I guess you talked about the, the training aspect uh, of uh, medical professionals and, and that, you know, even a lot of emergency room doctors who are probably kind of the first line when somebody gets a snake bite, you know, I'm assuming 99% of the time, the first medical professional they encounter, um, first medical doctor, let's say they encounter, is in an emergency room. Uh, and so, what would your 
you mentioned that typically they wouldn't have the level of expertise that someone like you obviously would have. But what level of training would would say your average emergency room doctor in the U.S. have relative to to snake bites? How, just how generally how well prepared are they for that type of situation? It, it kind of depends on where they're training. You know, there are you know good emergency physicians who practice in the north who will never see a snake bite in their careers. So when they come in, they'll call poison control and be like, they'll, they'll be the first to admit they don't know what to do. And in a way, that's okay. It's okay to know what you don't know. You know, I'd rather have people recognize that deficiency than just go freelancing, doing what they think is right and not being correct. You know, in the South, in places where snake bites are a lot more common, they'll know the basics. But it's what you know beyond the basics that separates you. It's the little things, you know, whether you remember to elevate the affected limb. And if you elevate correctly, like I have certain tricks to appropriately elevate the affected limb. Uh, it's knowing what pain medicines we like, knowing that you don't have to give antibiotics, knowing that we don't get surgery involved, that these are medical emergencies. You know, in a lot of places, snake bites are managed by the trauma service. And you know what? They're not traumatic conditions. They're not surgical emergencies. They're medical emergencies. And one of my number one jobs uh, has been for the last few years to keep surgeons away from snake bites because these are medical conditions that are treated medically. Um, so an emergency physician may know the basics. They may not know the basics, but it's all the other stuff. And of course, we're only talking about native snakes. You know, mm. where I live in Texas, we get lots of non-native bites because people can own whatever they want. And, you know, there's a story right now of a cobra on the loose in North Texas. And, you know, we've had a few... Uh, non-native bites out of North Carolina in the last few months. And we had a cobra on the loose in North Carolina. When people come in with non-native bites, it totally disrupts everybody because they, they don't know what to do. And they often want to treat it just like one of our native bites. And oftentimes they're very different bites managed completely differently. That's why you need someone with expertise. You need to reach out to someone who knows what he or she is doing. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I want to transition and talk a little bit about snake bite treatment specifically. And some of that I'm going to frame relative to my experiences talking about how people treat these, you know, in the wild. Um, but then ultimately, you know, I do want to get to, you know, what what you do when somebody walks in the door. Um, and and I'm going to start out, there are a lot of things, you know, when I talk about snake bite treatment in the wild, it's more about what not to do than what to do. Um, and, and the, the, you know, my snake bite kit is actually very intuitive when I give these presentations. It's, you know, I show them a pair of car keys and a cell phone and, you know, it's about transportation and it's about, uh, you know, communication. And so, but I want to go through some of these things and just have you speak to them for a minute. I know you've thought about a lot of them, uh, you know, in depth. I actually saw there's a lot of overlap in the questions I get. And then, you know, the questions that that you mentioned on your website that you frequently get. Um, and so let's start off. I talk about I talked about the snake bite kit that I would recommend and uh, talk about venom extraction devices and people will likely have seen these they almost look like a like a syringe that would a large syringe that it, with a suction cup that would put pressure on that spot and um and the theory is that it would pull venom out of the bite um do you want to speak to uh and maybe start off with the name of the paper <laughs> but uh you know speak to speak to these items and and their usefulness 
So the venom extracting devices are great for one thing, and that is generating profits for the people who manufacture and sell them. Otherwise, they are horrible. They are horrific. We know that they don't actually remove any significant amount of venom. In one paper, it was between like 0.0 something percent and 2% with an average of like 0.1%. So a clinically completely insignificant amount. We also know that they cause tissue injury by generating negative pressure and sort of concentrating the venom by removing interstitial fluid. Back in 2004, Sean wrote uh, what I think is the best titled editorial ever. These venom extraction devices don't remove venom. They just suck. And since then, a number of us who specialize in managing snake bites have been involved with a public awareness campaign to get them off the markets. These things are so common, and yet they cause harm. They don't help at all. And anyone who has one should throw it out or just save it for historical purposes. Like I have a few at my house to display, but I would never let them touch a patient I cared about because they don't help, they hurt. In fact, that's the sort of the tagline for the public awareness campaign. No good, just harm. Yeah. And and, uh, so as you mentioned, it's not just that they don't help, but is there some truth that they can actually localize tissue damage in a very small area? They can exacerbate local tissue damage. You know, imagine the world's worst hickey without any of the fun associated with getting a hickey. (laughs) And you can get like, in fact, we had a patient a few days ago who, who applied one to his son. Well, we had a patient who had one applied by his dad, and it caused this big lesion on the leg that would not have happened otherwise. It was all iatrogenic because his dad applied one of these devices. Now, the kid eventually recovered, but it was a lot more complicated that had his dad not done that to him. Okay, so another topic. I was, uh, you know, I've worked in various places around the world, and I was on, uh, we were on a National Geographic expedition. I was down in uh, South America, and uh, one of my colleagues, who was, uh, I believe he was an archaeologist of sorts, um, we were down there, and we were going through our packs, and he had these very small, like, mobile, like, electric shock devices, and he carried these to treat snake bite, and he had told, he told me, you know, three or four stories about how these electric shock devices um, had saved his dog in particular. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I get your chomping at the bed. I want, I want to hear, uh, we probably have a very similar uh, rant on this, but I want to hear your take on the value of electricity for treating snake bite. The value of electrical therapy for snake bite is that it identifies idiots. That's about <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> There is no evidence whatsoever that electrical therapy of any type can help a snake bite. You know, people argue, oh, it denatures the protein. No, it denatures the human. It is responsible for local tissue injury, permanent tissue damage, and on occasion, death. And this is true irrespective of the envenoming species. We, we've seen it applied to various snake bites, to spider bites, all sorts of bites and stings. Electrical therapy does not help it harms, it causes tissue injury and occasionally kills the person. And it, it amazes me that people still, you know, recommend this. And it amazes me that people actually listen to these people. I mean, I know that there's a growing divide between the educated and the uneducated, but my God, it is ridiculous. Now I, I know it's cool in a Tarantino sort of way to hook your friends up to a car battery, but realize it's not going to do anything for your snake bites. <laughs> Thank you for that. So uh, another one, uh, and this is actually 
what I tell audiences is different than what you mentioned on the, uh, you know, on your website. So I'm curious uh, for you to tell our audience about this. And this has to do with how you might position, let's say the, the bite is on an extremity, yes. like an arm or a hand. I've always told people in a setting, whether they're, they need to get out of the wild on their own, or they're waiting for somebody to keep that at about heart level to, to either not say, uh, raising it and, and, you know, maybe promoting venom getting quicker to vital organs or say lowering it and, and potentially causing greater, uh, localized damage. However, what I learned from your website is that that what I'm telling people is probably not accurate. And, and I wonder if you could just kind of get into that a little bit. Absolutely. So this is an area I'm, I'm definitely passionate about. So let's address the most important thing, we never, we never put the affected limb below heart level. People have previously recommended that by arguing, well, you don't want to increase the venom absorption. But the amount of venom is so insignificant that positioning is not going to have a difference whatsoever. What we know is that with our native pit viper bites, there's tissue injury in over 95% of envenomations. And for the majority of our native pit viper envenomations, tissue damage is the only thing we see. And sometimes we see really impressive swelling. We want to reduce that swelling as much as possible. We want to reduce the tissue injury as much as possible. Those of us who've treated bites for years have known that elevation rapidly improves that swelling. It minimizes the amount of swelling and subsequent tissue damage. For years, we knew it, but we had no great data. But now we even have data proving this. Because at last year's North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, Dr. Buer from North Carolina presented data showing that people whose affected limbs were, were elevated got better faster and had fewer complications. There's no question that elevation helps. And the funny thing is, elevation is recommended in the unified treatment algorithm that came out 10 years ago. Now, that's not a pre-hospital paper. That's for in-hospital management. But it's still been around for 10 years. And it's literally the second thing they mentioned. It's one of the most important things. We want to elevate and we want to elevate correctly. You know, sometimes I see, actually fairly frequently, I'll see this elevation where the leg's on a pillow and the knee is higher than the ankle, even though it's a foot bite. That's not elevation. That's actually, you know, keeping it dependent because all the fluid is going to rush back to that affected area. You want the distal part of the limb as high as possible. And you want, you know, at, a, like at least a 45 degree angle. And you don't want a big bend in the elbow or the knee because then fluid can accumulate there. You want it high and straight. And, and they get better faster. You know, I think that elevation is second only to antivenom in improving patients' outcomes. So it is so important. And I think slowly but surely we're making progress. People are beginning to hear what we have to say. They're beginning to read the data and they are beginning to practice better. But you still have, you know, people recommending it. In fact, if you look at the, the CDC, I don't know who authored it. It's probably some intern, you know, on a break from college, you know, over the summer who publish something saying, oh, below heart level, even the Mayo Clinic. But you know what? You should not keep a below heart level. You should elevate as much as possible, as quickly as possible, for as long as possible, and they get better faster. Great. Well, I'm that's something new for me, and and I'm going to change, uh, you know, what I tell people. So thank you for that. I, I could go on. I have a list of like 20 of these, but there's just one more I'll ask you. And then, uh, and then I want to talk about, uh, you know, what you do when somebody walks into, say, the emergency room. Um, but the other one I wanted to ask you about, and I've been a little unclear about this over the years, is in a wilderness-type setting, um, 
what is the value in carrying an EpiPen? I, I mean, I tell people to carry them because it can't hurt, say, for, uh, you, know, I, you know, something that's more common, like an allergy to, say, stinging insect or something like that. But do you, do you ever see instances where having an EpiPen would have been helpful relative to a snake bite in the field? Almost never. And I do take exception with your argument that it can't hurt because it can absolutely hurt. So here's the thing. Okay. Epinephrine is used for two situations. And an EpiPen is used for one of those two. An EpiPen is for a severe anaphylactic reaction. Severe anaphylactic reactions to an envenomation are exceptionally uncommon. Most people, most treating physicians will never see one, even those, those of us who treat snake bites. Anaphylaxis to snake venom is exceptionally uncommon and requires prior sensitization to the snake venom. By definition, anaphylaxis requires some sort of prior sensitization. It doesn't mean you have you haven't been envenomated before, but you have to be sensitized to snake venom antigens somehow. Anaphylaxis is really, 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 really rare. And an EpiPen is only indicated for anaphylaxis. Well, and I should clarify and say that when I said it doesn't hurt, I mean, it doesn't hurt to have it in your backpack, no. not that it doesn't hurt to use it. It, it could hurt to use it. You, there's, yeah. there's a time you use an EpiPen and right. I am aware of that. So what I'm yeah. saying. So, and as, and let's bring that you. So it doesn't hurt to have one unless it you know, weighs you down to, you know, too much that final ounce and a half or whatever weighs you down. But, you know, to give it indiscriminately, if you have heart disease, if you have high blood pressure, if you're at risk for a stroke, it can absolutely cause morbidity and even mortality. Now, a severe envenomation, which might include a direct envenomation into a blood vessel, clinically often resembles anaphylaxis. You can have hypotension, you can have airway swelling, and those people are incredibly sick and they often require epinephrine as well, but an EpiPen is not gonna cut it. What they need is an epinephrine infusion in the hospital along with antivenom. You know, clinically, they're often very similar, although you don't see urticaria with the severe envenomation usually. Um, Clinically, they're similar, but the pathophysiology is different and the treatment is different. The definitive treatment for severe animation is timely antivenom. Anaphylaxis, which is really, 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 I cannot overemphasize how rare it is, that's when you give epi. Okay. So, yeah, it's fine to carry one, but you shouldn't be using it. It's as simple yeah, as that. Maybe, maybe it's actually more dangerous because if you are carrying it, you'd be tempted to use it in a situation when it's right. not needed. Um, okay. Let's uh so you're you're in your hospital, say you're in some downtime and you're catching up some emails in your office, and all of a sudden you get notice snake bite victim has just come into the ER. So what do you do? I'm just curious, like uh like snake bite treatment in in you know, when you're in charge of it, what are the things you ask? What what are maybe a couple different scenarios of, of things you might need to do, those types of things? Okay. So I'm so trying to imagine this situation where I have downtime um, <laughs> and I don't have an office in this hospital, so I have to find places, which is why I'm sitting in a call room right now. But yeah, so when I get notified about a bite, my first question is, oh, I wonder if it was a friend of mine because about half the time it is. Um, I, so I go over there and the good thing is I'm in Southeast Texas where we have primarily copperhead bites and what we see is almost exclusively tissue injury. As I said before, the bites we see most commonly are associated with tissue injury, and my job is to minimize the amount of permanent tissue damage. 
Uh, on occasion, we get some systemic toxicity, but mostly it's tissue injury. So I go in there, you know, I make sure there's no uh, problem with the airway breathing circulation. I make sure there's no life threats. So if there is, they get brought back immediately and we stabilize them, whether that means giving epinephrine, IV fluids, you know, putting them on a breathing machine. You know, we'll do the life threats right away. Assuming that's not an issue, and and it usually isn't, you know, I find out what happened, you know, how they got bitten, when they got bitten. I make sure the affected limb is elevated, and it's one of the first things I do. I have a special pillow, and I'm not going to name the company that makes that pillow until they give me some sort of sponsorship deal, <laughs> uh, and then I will advertise the bejesus out of them and give them credit, and it will sell thousands of these pillows. But I have a special pillow that I keep in the ED. Uh, you know, they're disposable, so I, I I keep a few stocked, and sometimes I'll steal them from other parts of the hospital. Um, so I, I elevate that affected limb because like I said, it's one of the best things we can do. Um, you know, we'll get IV access, we'll get blood tests to make sure there's no hematological lab abnormalities, make sure there's no concomitant medical conditions. And it's all about pain control and then determining whether they need antivenom. You know, I am a big believer in antivenom and I see people get better a lot faster with antivenom. So if there's anything that suggests that they need it, I'll have that whole discussion about the risks, benefits, costs, et cetera, of getting treated versus going untreated. You know, people always talk about the cost of antivenom. And a lot of times that deters people from getting it. A lot of times it deters doctors from even offering it. But what you have to understand is there's financial implications of going untreated as well. Because if you get treated and you're back at work in a week, you can earn a living. If you go untreated and you're you know, disabled six months later and you can't earn an income, that's a big deal as well. Um, one of the biggest problems with people who go untreated is that a small percentage of them will have permanent disability. It is life altering. We don't typically see that when people get treated in a timely fashion. So I go in there, I see if it's a friend of mine, I get the elevated, you know, the limb elevated, I deal with any life threats, I get the blood work, I get pain control. And then, you know, we talk about the risks, benefits and costs of antivenom. And then more often than not, I treat with antivenom. And that's not true in a lot of places. A lot of places, a lot of bites go untreated and it, it saddens me because a lot of these bites should be treated. I see these patients, we talk about it, I do my spiel, they get antivenom and usually they're, you know, they're admitted overnight and they go home the next day. Most of my snake bite patients are home within 24 hours because once you've treated them and you've addressed the issue, there's really no benefit in staying in the hospital longer. Great. Well, let, let me ask you just a couple questions there. And then, so let's just say somebody comes in with a snake bite, maybe based on your geography, you assume it's a you know, a Kisteron or a Copperhead, but uh, let's say you don't know and they don't know what it is. How, how uh, and let's just say you're in a, in a region where you could have drastically different venom. Like how would you very quickly kind of assess how you might need to treat that differently? So, so that's a great question. And the answer is you don't have to treat it differently. This is one of the things I'm always emphasizing. I like to know this species for epidemiological purposes, but whether it's a copperhead, cottonmouth, or a rattlesnake, it is a crotalid envenomation. And any crotalid can be responsible for a bite that is mild, moderate, severe, or fatal. We don't have to know the species. We have to recognize the clinical syndrome. Is this a crotalid envenomation or is it not? You know, these crotalid or pit viper envenomations clinically are very different from coral snake bites because we have coral snakes as well. And I love coral snake envenomations. But they look completely different. Anyone who knows anything about snake bites can easily distinguish a pit viper bite from a coral snake bite, and we treat them differently. Mm -hmm. If they have the swelling, the bruising, the sheen, you know, plus minus the hematologic or systemic 
you know, signs and symptoms we get with pit viper bites. If they have those local findings, I don't have to know if it's a copperhead or cottonmouth. I don't care if it's a copperhead or cottonmouth. I treat them based on what's happening with them individually, not what species I think is responsible. And I think that's a common problem. Oftentimes people will minimize bites from copperheads, even if they're severe, just because it was allegedly from a copperhead. So you'll have a severe copperhead bite that goes untreated, and then they'll treat this minimal rattlesnake envenomation because it was a rattlesnake. And I think that's really dumb. I think you have to treat the patient in front of you and don't focus on what allegedly bit them, but focus on what's happening. If they have significant tissue injury or if they're having systemic toxicity, you treat them. It doesn't matter what the species is. And the, the antivenoms we use in the United States are approved for all North American pit fibers. So we don't have to know the species. We just have to make that clinical diagnosis. And all too often, people go untreated because either it's a copperhead and they minimize it, or they'll say that they can't treat because they don't know the species. You don't have to know the species. You just have to know, is it a pit viper envenomation or is it not? Great. Thank you. Okay. Last piece on snake bite treatment, and then we're going to begin to wrap it up here. Um, so in, in just a few minutes, we're going to introduce the audience to uh, a friend of mine, um, and a really brave and uh, woman with kind of an inspiring, interesting story. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of give the sneak peek, she had a snake bite while she was pregnant. And so I'm just curious, we won't spend a lot of time, but because uh, it's such a, a uh, you know, such a niche or such a, a focused area, but in that type of situation, uh, and thinking about the baby inside of a mother and, and snake bite, um, I'm assuming if if a if a pregnant woman gets a venomous snake bite, um, the baby is is also you know potentially in danger that the the venom is potentially going into the baby. Yeah, so we know that envenomation pregnancy puts the fetus at risk because of bleeding complications, because of systemic toxicity, and a rule of thumb, irrespective of, you know, the mechanism of, you know, badness, if you will, the rule of thumb for a pregnant mom is you treat the baby by treating the mom. Now, I already mm -hmm. have a low threshold to treat snake bites with antivenom, but I have an even lower threshold to treat a pregnant woman with antivenom because we know that fetal deaths have resulted from, you know, crotalin envenomation. You know, they can have placental abruption. They can have all sorts of, you know, bleeding related complications. So yeah, you treat them the same way. Yeah. Antivenom is category C in pregnancy means there's no good studies on it, but generally, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Um, so yeah, I would have a very low threshold to treat. Great. Have you ever had the opportunity to treat a pregnant woman with a snake bite? I have. I, even, I had to treat a pregnant friend of mine with a copperhead bite. Oh, wow. Great. And I'm assuming everything went well and the baby was Everything healthy. went perfectly. Baby's fine. Uh, you know, mom and husband are happy. Um, 
I got some good baked goods out of it. So yeah, it worked out for everyone. <laughs> That's great. I'm a big fan of baked Okay, goods. well, let's... <laughs> uh, is there anything else before we, we kind of wrap up here? Is there anything else relative to snakebite that you think is is just critically important? I know there's a lot of a lot of things we haven't discussed, but anything in particular you want to mention or or discuss that you think would be real important for our audience? Yeah, so a lot of people always ask, well, where do I go if I were to get bitten? And we, this is something we talked about sort of the beginning of the conversation. I think if you're in areas where snake bites are common or if you're doing – you know, activities where you're more likely to encounter a snake and subsequently get snake bitten, I think you need to figure out where your local and regional experts are. If you're having life-threatening signs and symptoms, you want to go to the closest hospital for stabilization. But if you're not, especially now, because it's almost impossible to get hospital transfers because all our hospitals are full, um, you want to go maybe a little farther away to get to the definitive care. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, go to your nearest trauma center. But as I said before, this is a medical emergency, not trauma. Now, Trauma centers are often, you know, big tertiary care centers that are often academic institutions. But you should figure out who your local expert is, who your regional expert is, and that's where you want to go for your bite. Because even if the drive takes longer, you'll probably still get treated faster and you'll get treated more expertly. You know, this is something that most doctors just can't, you know, do very well. And you want to get the best possible care. So you should have a plan before you get bitten. So heaven forbid it happens you know where to go, what to do. And like you said, that's all part of being calm too. If you have a plan, if you know what you're going to do, that'll help you stay a little more calm in this situation. Well, thank you. That's, that's great advice. I always promote a plan and being calm. Uh, and you want to add one thing to that? One other tell. thing. So people don't realize oftentimes that most bites are the result of of unintentional interaction with the snake. Most bites do not happen when people are messing with the snake. Most bites happen when they step on or near the snake or they reach into the bush and they get bitten by the snake. So if I could tell you one thing to prevent snake bites is don't wear flip-flops or go barefoot or wear open-toed shoes in the dark in places where snake bites are common. I've had 40-something bites this year. All but six of them happened in people who were wearing inappropriate or no footwear. So Watch where you step, use a flashlight at night, don't stick your foot somewhere that you can't see and, you know, keep your toes protected and you'll be a lot better off. Great. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, let's imagine in all this abundant downtime you have that, um, <laughs> that you and I are, are sitting somewhere, uh, relaxing, having a coffee or, a, or a, uh, beverage of some type and, and you're going to tell me your best snake bite story. <sighs> wow. There are so many great stories in terms of how severe they were or how they got bitten or what. You know, I've had people get bitten in the craziest ways. You know, there was uh, this little kid who found a coral snake in the middle of the road and he was trying to save it. So he grabbed it and you know, bring it to safety and he got tagged. Or there was another one, a kid who was trying to liberate a snake that his brother had captured and he got bitten while he was taken out of a cage. There's one kid who was playing with a cottonmouth. He was a seven-year-old and he got tagged. And while waiting transfer to my hospital, the emergency physician asked him, well, I, you know, I guess you're not going to play with snakes anymore, huh? And the kid goes, well, not until I get out of the hospital. Um, <laughs> you know, I've had people with severe, you know, bites, um, you know, 
people who within seconds of getting bitten had severe hypotension and airway swelling because they had been sensitized previously or because they got bitten in the vein. Um, I would say the best story, however, is someone who had had six previous snake bites, but I actually treat him for a Gila monster bite. And this is like my best envenomation ever. This guy had had six previous snake bites. He had lost his thumb to a snake bite and he woke up one morning and he had the breakfast of unchampions. He had two pitchers of beer and he decided he wanted to be a pirate, but there was a conspicuous absence of parrots where he lived. So instead he picked up a Gila monster and put it on his shoulder. And shortly thereafter, that Gila monster bit him on the neck. Within oh. seconds, he had airway swelling. He had massive, you know, generalized swelling. He had horrible diarrhea and his blood pressure plummeted. At the first hospital, they forced a tube down his throat. They gave him everything they had and a few things they didn't have. And they shipped him to me. And he arrived to the hospital about 10 minutes after a snake bite. And that snake bite was stable. It was one of the more boring snake bites in the, you know, in the scheme of things. And I said something to her that I've said to none of the other thousands of snake bite patients I've seen. I said, excuse me while I go see somebody more interesting. And this guy was just <laughs> sick. And he spent a week on the ventilator. He ultimately recovered. Um, but yeah, that was impressive. Um, and of course, like I said, we deal with a lot of the non-native bites. So I've had a bunch of friends end up on the ventilator after getting bitten by monocle cobras. You know, I published a case series last year of some of these bites that ended up on mechanical ventilation. And I'm thinking about writing a book called Idiot Friends of Mine Who Pet Their Cobras and Ended Up in the Hospital. Because it happens a lot. Um, Great. Well, that's a a series of great stories, but the Gila monster was definitely the highlight there. It brought up one other question I want to ask you just real quick. So you mentioned people have received multiple bites and you hear, you know, that people, you know, get multiple bites and either get more sensitized to a future bite or get immune to a future bite. Is there any truth to any of that? There's definitely no truth to the immunity. It just doesn't happen People, you know, there, I will say this, there is no evidence in the medical literature of anyone having immunity to snake venom. You know, people have purported it for years, they've advertised it. There is no evidence in the medical literature that anyone has ever developed immunity. There's definitely evidence that people have developed sensitivity. The other thing I want to mention is people can safely receive antivenom more than once. You know, I've treated multiple people multiple times. Um... And there's this great case series of someone who got treated at least 19 times. We know he's treated more than that, but we only have records for 19 of them. And, you know, he was safely and, you know, effectively treated with antivenom at least 19 times. So you can definitely get antivenom more than once. That's sometimes a barrier to getting antivenom. The doctors say, well, well, once you give it, you can never get it again. So we want to hold off. And this, that's not true. People can get treated again and again. Uh, And they often have to because they won't develop immunity to the snake bite. Well, Dr. Green, I want to thank you. There are actually multiple things that we talked about in this episode that are literally going to change how I present, uh, you know, snake bite and, and treatment, at least in the wild. Um, and I hope a lot of other people uh, learned uh, as much as I did as well. So, again, uh, you know, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. This was this was fun. And uh Now, I just want to uh, transition, and uh, we are going to introduce you to a uh, friend of mine uh, who who lives in the same county I live in. We're going to talk to Lisa about, um, you know, just a a really uh, significant event that that she experienced uh, 
in her life. I am sitting here today in my office uh, with Lisa. Um, Lisa and I, at a time, had uh, businesses that were right next door to each other. And at that time, during that time period, she ended up getting a venomous snake bite. Uh, And so I invited her here today uh, to tell her story. And it's also really important for uh, the audience to, to realize that when she received this snake bite, she was pregnant. So Lisa, uh, thanks for being here today and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. Well, why, why don't you start off? I guess the first thing uh, that I'd like to know is, is about the bite itself. So why don't you just start there and kind of tell us what you were doing and, and how the bite occurred. Okay. Um, my husband and I had actually gone on just an impromptu date night and um, we had just gotten home and I pulled into the driveway, stepped out of the car and on our date night, we had gone and got, gotten groceries because, you know, <laughs> um, and I had stepped out of the car and stepped to the back seat just to grab a couple bags of groceries and felt uh, the only way I can describe it would be extremely forceful, um, felt like somebody hit me with a a hammer that had a point on it as hard as it could. And I was wearing sandals and the snake got just me, no strap, no shoe, nothing. So I felt it all. Um, and it was so forceful that I remember looking up because I never thought that it had come from the ground. Um, I thought something had to have fallen on me or something like that. And, um, my husband said that I jumped back. I don't really remember because it's sort of, I think I went into shock. Um, and he came around the car and uh, he said, I just kept saying, what was that? It hurt. What was that? And it wasn't until he came around and he said, oh my gosh, it's a snake that I even knew what had happened. So, um, I'm not sure if I had been alone, how long it would have taken me to register it all. But I looked down at that point and I remember seeing it curled up in the driveway and its head was up looking at my husband and its tail up rattling at him, just warning him like to stay back. Um, that point it went under the car and my husband told me to jump in the car and let's go. So we took off at that point. So that's where we were. So see so the bite actually happened on your foot is where yeah, it was snake. on my foot on the top, um, left side of my left foot right um, below, like my pinky toe on the top of my foot. Okay. And, uh, so then, so you, you get the snake bite and your husband said, Let's let's get into the car. How, mm-hmm. how many months pregnant were you? I was uh, 17 weeks pregnant. Okay. So almost halfway okay. through the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So you guys get in the car and, the, and then what happens? Uh, he dialed 911 and took off driving very quickly down the road straight toward our hospital because we just figured that's where we'd need to go. Um, but he also called 911. And as he was on the phone with them, they had called the hospital and found out they were actually out of anti-venom because someone I think had been bitten the week before or something and they didn't have any more. So they advised us to just go to um, where an ambulance was waiting for us just down the road. And when we got there, um, I was obviously very upset at this point because I, it was excruciating, but also I was worried about, about my son. So um, 
I was upset and crying. And when we got to the paramedics, they did a great job just calming me right down, made me feel like they, they had this. And um, they actually then could tell it was pretty severe and had called a helicopter in. So at that point, they took me to where the helicopter took me to the hospital. So you were up here in the mountains at, mm-hmm. you know, a small mountain hospital mm-hmm. and the helicopter picked you up up here. Yeah, they took me from here down to an hour away. So to a different hospital. Yep. Okay. And uh, so what happened when when the helicopter landed and you got to the, the hospital in the larger city? Unfortunately, that's where my story gets um, not great. Um the ER didn't really know what to do because I was pregnant. They um, just kept saying they weren't sure if antivenom was safe for someone who's pregnant um, because of the unborn child. So, um, and it was a very busy night that night. I remember there being beds in the hallways with other patients and stuff. And so they left me laying there for a long time, many, many hours with nothing. And because I was pregnant, I wouldn't even take painkillers. And so I just laid there in a lot of pain and, Every 30 minutes, they would come in and take a Sharpie and mark my leg. And after a lot of time had gone by, it was clear it wasn't stopping. And um, they were at least halfway up my thigh at that point marking. And um, they decided to start the antivenom at that point. And what was the pain level like, would you say, (laughs) during that part of the process? Um, The actual bite itself and the, you know, when the venom initially started to take over was excruciating. It was like, I remember describing it like it was like lava was all over my foot while things were stabbing me and poking me and a lot of pressure. It was just, it was really interesting. I've never felt anything else like it. Um, And then the pain just was creeping up my leg. That pain wasn't as intense, but it was, it was still very painful. Um, but not nearly as, as bad as the initial, the initial part. So they make the, the decision that, well, to save your life, they mm-hmm. need to start administering antivenom, but mm-hmm. they're unsure about mm-hmm. what might happen to the baby. So, um, so what happened next? Um, so then when I got to um, ICU, a nurse came in, the very first nurse I had, and uh, she started asking me questions like, well, what did they say since you're pregnant? Uh, you know, there are going to be any side effects and will there be birth defects, anything like that? And I said, they never did say they, they never really seemed to find out. And she said, I'm going to call Crofab. And I, that was the first time I'd even heard the name Crofab. I didn't even know what that was. And, um, I was like, who's that? <laughs> she said, that's who makes the antivenom. Let's see if they know anything. And she came back in the room within 20 minutes with all kinds of information for me, actually, that it was perfectly safe. Um, there's no side effects whatsoever. Um, so it made me feel a lot better about the whole situation. Unfortunately, because they did wait too long, I, I did end up losing my son. Um, I was bitten on the 21st of June and on the 23rd of June, his heart stopped. So but I was still in ICU. I spent until the 25th in ICU. Um, the orthopedic surgeon would not release me because of the damage done to my leg. He wasn't sure if I would um, need surgery or not for my legs. So wasn't until then I was released and then sent to labor and delivery, unfortunately, at that point. So I'm, I'm sure, um, it didn't, the pain of your leg didn't matter at that point, but, um, 
so what happened to your leg? Did you need anything like surgery, like a fasciotomy or anything they like that? ended up not needing to do anything, <clears throat> which I was grateful for. Um, but I did, I was not able to put any pressure on it at all. I wasn't able to walk for almost three weeks actually from, um, the damage that was done, I suppose. And I still actually have a lot of nerve damage from it yeah. to this day, five years later. So, yeah. so it actually took, um, uh, a couple days for your son's heart to stop beating. You said, yeah, it was the 21st, but it was, uh, at nine fifteen at night. And then the 23rd in the morning I found out. So it wasn't long, you know, and was, uh, they were obviously monitoring him. Mm -hmm. Um, and was it a sudden thing or was it something that you all realized he was battling for life as well? Um, it seemed sudden to me um, when I found out my brother, who's actually a doctor, was in the ICU with me just visiting. And so when they came in that, that morning to do the ultrasound, he knew. Um, he could see and he knows what he's looking at. Um, and so he actually followed the doctor out and asked, could I please be the one to tell her? And he told me and then they actually allowed him to um, look over the, the day before. And his heart rate had been dropping. Okay. In the, I didn't know they had not told me that. Of course, they didn't want to worry me on top of everything else I was dealing with at that point. So, so I was uh, in the process. I had, I believe it was eleven vials of anti venom. So it was quite a bit, eleven or twelve. I thought it was eleven. My husband thinks it was twelve, but it's something <laughs> like that. So, so you're in the hospital. What did you say for four or five days total? Then in the ICU. In the ICU, me. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then how long were you in the hospital after that? Uh, just to, it was the 25th and the 26th and then I was able to go home. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and then what was the recovery? Like you said, you still have nerve damage. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so first of all, I, I'm curious what that nerve damage is and do you think it'll be long-term and then, uh, and then how long was that home recovery to get to the point where you are today? Well, like I said, it took me almost three weeks to walk, and my room is upstairs, so I slept downstairs. Um, couldn't even go up the stairs or put any pressure on it for almost three weeks. Um, just the swelling was so bad, and the and the pain was so bad. They told me not to force it, not to put pressure on it until that started to feel a little bit better. The swelling was still there for a while. I actually still have a little bit of swelling now, five years later. Not nearly like it was, but a little bit. Um, now the, the nerve damage, nobody really seems to know, can no neurologist or anybody can seem to tell me they, I've been told it can take years for nerves to, to repair. So, um, what's the effect you know, though? You, you said there's nerve damage. Is it like mm -hmm. on the bottom of your foot? Is it actually, it's, um, I can't really run or jump anymore because of actually where I was bit on the top of my foot is it hurts any time there's any kind of, if I jump or try to run, there's this like sharp pain um right where i was actually bitten uh the rest of it the best way i can describe it is my leg feels extremely heavy all of the time um especially it seems like first thing in the morning it's like hard to move it um and it feels like it's always you know the pins and needles that you get when your foot your leg is asleep or coming out of being asleep it's what it feels like all the time it never stops <laughs> so it's a constant reminder unfortunately but so you went through this monumental, uh, just tragic event in your life. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, I picked up on some things from your story, but is there any, 
anything you would tell other people or any advice that you might give people in terms of how, say, they could minimize snake bite or maybe help themselves uh, with treatment when they get to medical facilities? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd say the number one thing is just to be watching, you know, just be aware. I know that seems so simple, but you know, just even getting out of your car, if it's a little dark and you can't see great, get your flashlight out. Everybody has one on their phone. Just take a, a peek real quick and look. That's what we do anyway now, my kids and my husband and I, we just always look um, before stepping out. Um, we, um, it's interesting because we only live, our land is only about a half an acre. It's not very large, but since the snake bite, I think we have found, and mostly my kids have found at least six or six or seven, maybe more snakes on our little bitty property, just because we're, we're watching now, you know, we're aware. Um, most of them have been non-venomous, just great snakes to have around. We welcome them. And then a couple of them have been copperheads. And so we just stay back, you know, leave them alone. It's, they're not going to come after you. That's something that we've all, you know, we're not afraid. We're not living in fear. We just, we're just being aware. Like I said, my kids are actually have found the majority of them, which is interesting to me. So I'm (laughs) thankful for that because it's actually maybe prevented them from being bitten just because they're aware now, you know, they're watching out while they're out playing in the yard and things. So, well, it seems like a big part of your story actually has to do with what happened or didn't happen at the hospital. Yeah. So, so do you have any advice for people on how they can be advocates for their own treatment in this type of situation? Yeah. Um, definitely. I mean, if anyone hears my story, especially if they're pregnant and they're bitten, just know you should get antivenom for one. I didn't know. And I even had people texting me like, I've been Googling it and it seems fine. Like just even a quick Google search could kind of tell you that it's perfectly safe. So, um, and the quicker you get it, obviously the better. So for, for your recovery and for your unborn child, if you were pregnant, um, and I have learned to be more of an advocate for myself and my family in the medical field, because you know, I, I think they're, the doctors are great and everything, but they don't know everything. They, no one actually in the almost week I was in the hospital in ICU, labor, delivery, ER, not a single person who cared for me had ever had a patient bit by a venomous snake that was pregnant, not one person. So, you know, they're not going to know everything. They're not going to have dealt with every um, single situation. So just, just know that you can speak up and say, yes, I need to get this and get your treatment that you need. So, well, I want the, uh, I want the audience to know that Lisa and I are sitting at a table in my office and there uh, is a cage between (laughs) us with a rattlesnake in it. I could uh, literally, if, if the cage, if the snake was not in the glass, either Lisa or I right now could reach out and touch that rattlesnake. Lisa (laughs) also has um, a wall full of rattlesnakes behind her. And so given this environment that we're sitting in and, and the story that you just told us, I wanted to last question I wanted to ask is how has this experience impacted how you think about snakes? Maybe kind of how you thought about snakes before the experience and if that changed and how so. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, before um, living up here, you know, I knew that they were around. And so we we thought we were being aware and watching out. Um, if we were out hiking and things like that, of course we were. If we were 
came across a downed tree. We didn't just jump over. We look over first, make sure there was no snake hiding where you couldn't see and things like that. Um, but I wasn't fearful or, you know, afraid of them um, right after the experience. I think given the fact that it wasn't just trauma for me, it was trauma plus grief. Um, it took a, a, a pretty large impact on me for a while. I can't really say for how long. I don't remember. But I had a really unrealistic fear of snakes for a while there. Like I was afraid to get out of bed in the mornings thinking there might be a snake on my floor. I mean, it was just, and I knew it was silly. I knew it was unrealistic, but I couldn't help it. I was very afraid. Um, now after some time has gone by and, um, you know, I've educated myself and, and our children and things like that. I'm actually not afraid at all. I just, I've, I've made myself get out. It took a little while. I didn't even want to get out in the woods and go hiking and do things that I used to enjoy. Um, but I kind of made myself just go and do it and told myself it's going to be okay. And it has been okay. Um, and now I actually find myself, um, advocating for snakes. A lot of times I'll see people, you know, on Facebook, make a post and they'll, people will constantly talk about them and say things like, uh, only good snake is a dead snake and stuff like that. People love to say things like that. And I'll speak up and be like, no, that's not true. You know, I feel like if anybody has the right to feel that way, it would be me. And I don't. So people just, I don't know. They're not bad. They're not, I don't know. Just be watching out. I don't know. I don't, I'm not afraid anymore, which I'm thankful for because it, it really was hard there for a little while, but I've gotten past it. And I will add that that Lisa still brings her children in to see our snakes today. So, well, thank you very much for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.